On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Ryan Hurd about the wrath of God. So we cover all sorts of topics like what does it mean to say that God has wrath? Does God get angry? What does that look like? What does it mean to say something like God has literally zero wrath? And if we say he has no wrath, literally zero, does that mean he also has zero mercy? How has the tradition generally thought about? How do Thomas and the Scholastics differ? Why do some of the Reformed authors make wrath an absolute attribute? And how does this interact with how the Scholastics more generally think about wrath and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist and confessional podcasts on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. We think the church has been given too many platitudes, and people haven't really thought carefully about all sorts of matters, and we want to hopefully encourage us to think better about these things. And one way we've described that is by trying to encourage or, or cultivate an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We think the church at large needs to have both sets of virtues of the kindness and the gentleness that we find um, commended as part of what the wisdom looks like, but also to have the seriousness of we need to examine all of what we're thinking carefully and properly and understand it's very difficult, and that's okay, and that's a good thing. Anyway, today I'm thrilled to talk uh, to Dr. Ull, well, soon to be Dr. Ryan Hurd. I almost misspoke. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Eventually he will be Dr. Ryan Hurd, but for now he is Ryan Hurd. And I, yeah, I, I'm speaking prophetically into the future here. Um, I'm talk, Ryan's been on the podcast before, so if, if you're a regular listener, you've heard him. It, it, I'm imagining a lot of our listeners know of Ryan because he's done a lot of work in different, in different contexts. There's a lot of stuff in the doctrine of God, and particularly today, we want to talk about the wrath of God and whether God has wrath and what that, what that looks like. Um, so I think this is a really relevant conversation and should be a lot of fun. Before we get started, Ryan, remind for, for my listeners who don't know who you are, give me a little bit of context for who you are what you study, and and then we can jump in. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, yeah, I'm really thrilled to be back here on the London Lyceum. One of these days, maybe you can introduce me as Dr. Ryan Hurd. Who, who knows? Uh, and then I can then I can re- respond. Thank you, uh, Dr. Stefaniak, uh, and then we can go with that. Yeah. So my name is Ryan. Um, I do theology primarily focus on theology proper, although I do a lot with the doctrine of Holy Scripture as well. Most of my training, my earlier training was more the Reformed Orthodox or early modern neo-scholastic tradition, moved more medieval, uh, and I suppose converted to Thomism, if you want to put it in those terms. Most people would describe me as a Thomist, and I would probably thank them. So I study Thomas, especially the Thomist tradition, focusing on doctrine of God, though I do a lot of work with the patristics as it merges into kind of the the cusp of the medieval tradition in in Thomas. Uh, I teach at the Davenant Institute, where I'm privileged to hold classes on systematics, and we do a lot of scouring the tradition writ large. And yeah, it's been a great privilege to work through things at a much deeper level. Um, You know, the classes that I was genuinely privileged uh, to take throughout my life on theology, um, often for various reasons, uh, had to face some serious limits on what what we could do in class and the amount of teaching that I was able to to receive. Again, genuinely quite thankful for it. Um, But in my classes, we really try and have a whole class on like one attribute of God, something like that. And we use that as an opportunity to exemplify how we do theology, especially theology proper more generally. Um, But it allows us to go super, super deep also in the tradition, the the rises and falls throughout the tradition, the high degree of variation, development of doctrines that we find where we're looking at the patristics, the medievals, the early moderns. Um, You know, everything is different all the way through and trying to make sense of it all, particularly from the perspective of Thomas. Thomas was really 
quite the genius at reconciling all the seemingly conflicting opinions. And so I found that knowing my way a bit about around Thomas uh, has enabled me to try and read the tradition profitably and take what's good, throw out what's bad, just like we're, we're always supposed to do as, as we engage tradition. Um, but I found that to be a rewarding experience. And so that's how I spend my time. So you started with Reformed Orthodox Early Modern, and you said you gradually moved over to more of thinking about Thomas. What was, or in, in the medievals, what, what was the sort of impetus for moving in that direction to say, I want to camp out here? Really, I was only ever masquerading as a pseudo-historian um, and just studying historical theology as a resource for doing actual systematics. And um, when I started out, given you know Protestant, uh, my background is generally speaking Reformed, kind of caught the whole Richard Muller bug and tried to squeeze the Reformed Orthodox, the early moderns for all their worth and their doctrine of God. And correspondently was doing a lot of work in their contemporary Roman Catholic neoscholastics. And I just found that the the deeper I went in systematics, uh, the more I realized that there were much, much superior systems prior to them. And the Reformed even themselves are, are constantly pointing in that direction. You know, they're, they're saying very clearly, we're doing a certain kind of theology with a certain final cause and therefore a certain good and value. And it's to be measured according to, to our goal, right? And if our goal is presenting God in a a pedible way to us normal people, uh, then we shouldn't be viewed as fielding all of the hyper-technicals. Uh, and indeed they weren't. And what they would do is they would gesture, well, you know, this is basically right, but if you want to know exactly what it is, or if you want to go super deep here, then you have to go read the scholastics. And so that's when I kind of followed their gestures and did a lot of reading in Henry of Ghent and Scotus, uh, but eventually, of course, found all the truth in Thomas Aquinas. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, well, yes. Anyway, that's that's kind of the the reason the reason for uh, the move was I was I was just tracing where the best systematics was, and I, I find that particularly in the Thomas tradition, you're hard pressed, you're very hard pressed, at least we can say, to find a more consistently developed and worked out tradition of thought, which has a more or less static use of terminology, especially than the Thomas tradition writ large. And trust me, there is a high degree of variation internal to Thomism, but it allows for the most aggressive pursuit, in my opinion, the most aggressive pursuit of questions relating to God and has been therefore my, my primary dialogue partner to, to really go as hard as we can go and, and kind of field these questions um, in the most precise and technical of levels. I found the Thomas tradition is about, is about the, the best place for doing that. There are obviously other places. You know, the patristics are, they're, they're finger painting rather than pencil sketching. Right. Every, their, 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 their paintings are exact, but they're doing colors. The early moderns are resting on the pencil sketches, the fine lines of the, of the medievals and also doing theology, which is for lay people. And it's really in the in the high medievals, especially the University of Paris with someone like a Thomas Albertus or Bonventura, that you have the most insane theology proper um, ever, period. And so if we want to solve our doctrine of God questions. And if everybody thinks that particularly the Protestant church today has a lot of problems in doctrine of God, which they do, um, then we need guys who say, all right, I'm going to be that weird guy who can't talk to normal people, but I know how to do scholasticism. And if you want to know the hyper-technicals, these are the hyper-technicals. They don't really translate into the pew very easily, but they support the pew. They intensify preaching downstream. And that's really the goal. And that was, again, the goal of the reformers, which were, so to speak, riding the coattails of the medievals self-attestedly. And we're very thankful for that. So my opinion, we need we need to to uh, recover the medievals so that all of us can ro- kind of ride their coattails in, in normal life and pastoral preaching and 
again, normal person piety. I count myself a normal person. Uh, we need we need guys who are doing the medievals. So when I think about the wrath of God, I still remember you wrote an essay for Davenant, I don't know, probably about a year ago now, where God has zero wrath. And that seemed to spark quite a bit of discussion and debate where, you know, if I talk to my grandma about, you know, does God have wrath? Is he merciful? There's probably going to be a pretty simple, well, well, God's not angry all the time. He's pretty happy and he's, and he's very merciful. But then it seems like when you write your essay, uh, a bunch of guys are like, whoa, 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 whoa. We we can't depart from God's wrath. It's very clearly in the scripture and et cetera. So it seems like there's a lot of complicated stuff that's going on in here. And there's a lot of visceral reactions to whether God has wrath and what type, like how that all works out. So maybe we just start with when we're talking about the wrath of God, what are we talking about? What do we mean when we say God is wrathful? Yes, this is definitely a, a very controversial subject. Um, I think in many ways it's an evangelical golden calf, a sacred cow. Um, doesn't mean necessarily a bad thing, but it's, it's very close to people. People get very emotional about it rather quickly. Um, it's also wrapped up in soteriology, one of the central pillars of I suppose we can call it Protestant soteriology would be penal substitution. Uh, and this view would, would entirely disable a penal penal substitution. And so there's going to be some resistance there. You also have the clear, frank, and frequent letters of Holy Scripture, which everywhere say that God has wrath. And um, it seems like you're 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 pulling you're pulling a fast one on Holy Scripture. How are you doing justice to the letters? Um, these types of questions, you know, from the perspective of of scholastic theology, we need to take those uh, reactions extremely seriously, and also hear what's behind those reactions and recognize that they're not wrongheaded. So when the scholastic tradition says, FYI, you need to white out most of the letters of Holy Scripture, it rightly raises people's eyebrows, not wrongly. Um, Holy Scripture and our habituated posture thereto as a place of truth, yes, and also the place that is important, most important perhaps to do genuine justice to, uh, is only something that we're supposed to encourage, not undermine. In the technicality of theology, sometimes it might seem on the surface like we're undermining that or like we're, we're going to be tearing something down. Um, that may or may not be the case uh, in, in, in the case of certainly what, what the tradition holds on wrath of God. It's not the case. Um, but it is scary for, for quite a long period of time, and it will feel like that to a lot of people. Again, understandably, their, their impulses are not, you know, not to be despised. The impulses are to be applauded. They've been trained well. They think well about Holy Scripture. And when it frankly and frequently says that God has wrath, uh, you better be able to give an explanation of wrath of God that does justice to those letters. So that's really the the, the bar. Um, with those kind of caveats in mind or acknowledgments in mind, uh, what is what is wrath of God? Well, the doctrine of wrath of God is where we truly affirm the predicate wrath or anger, which are the same for our intents and purposes, where we truly affirm the predicate wrath or anger to God. And that's an affirmation that we make because of certain reason or explanation. That's the account. Uh, and importantly, uh, because this happens to be not a proper affirmation, we also make that affirmation not because another reason. So in certain cases, when your explanation is rather unusual for an affirmation, you need to do something called flag the false cause. And note that it's not because da-da-da-da-da-da, but rather because da-da-da-da-da-da. And sometimes we have to camp out on the, the not reason uh, to ensure that people don't hear us wrongly or misinterpret and things like that. So 
in the doctrine of wrath of God, we're going to need to compose or affirm the predicate wrath or anger to God. Do so for a certain reason and do so not for another reason, which is really important to take note of lest we make mistake. The certain reason why we do affirm it, we can start with, first of all, um, in the tradition, it can be, in fact, various reasons. And really, there's two kinds of reasons that we find in the tradition. Although uh, from the early modern period onward, we begin to find some false kinds of reasons for this affirmation. That's where we start to see some problems. But nonetheless, two kinds of reasons. One is merely a reason of some creaturely happening or divine effect. And the other is a reason of some analogy of proportionality, which involves that effect. Um, and that second reason is uh, kind of envelops the first and is, it's, and is its intensification. That second reason really comes to the fore of the medievals and Thomas, as we'll see. But nonetheless, the first reason that God is angry or has wrath is merely because punishment happens from sin. Merely because punishment happens from sin. Sin causes harm or pain also in the individual who has sinned, in the actual sinner. Either it's immediate harm, we might say, or at least it's ultimate harm of some sort. That harm or pain is a creaturely happening and is called or even identified as wrath of God by the fathers of medievals. They point to that reality of pain and they say, this is wrath of God, this thing here, not some, not something hanging up there in God, not an emotion, not a passion, you know, insert whatever word you want here. No, it's the distress, even the mental un discomfort, if you like, that you're feeling as a result of sin, um, minimally, and then other other kinds of harms and pains on your on your body or on the world or on your soul, whatever. Okay. So that harm or pain is a creaturely happening. It's called or even identified as wrath of God. But correspondently, when we do consider God in relation to this creaturely happening, we say, how is God in relation to this that's happened? Then insofar as he affects or causes that creaturely happening, we can say that he's angry because he wills that pain to be punishment for sin. Hence, God, when he punishes, is said to be angry. In other words, it's true to affirm, to predicate, to compose this predicate of God when punishment happens from sin. And insofar as God is in a causal relationship to that creaturely effect. Okay? That's reason number one. And that's the bottom tier reason. And most of the fathers, for various reasons, believe that almost always that's the reason, the actual reason why when we find a letter in Holy Scripture talking about wrath of God. So the actual reason why is nothing to do with God, nothing to do with an emotion in God or justice in God or something like that, which comes much later in the tradition. But because the final causality of Holy Scripture is to avert us to relevant items in the world for the sake of our salvation, God takes up this name, wrath or anger, in order to advert our attention to the real pain that happens from sin, in order to disincline us from sinning, because sinning is bad, and God wants to save us. And therefore, he says, FYI, I'm angry. In other words, FYI, if you sin, you're going to experience pain. And I'm going to, as it were, uphold that pain as punishment, which is a due to or owed to or justly arises from your sin. Okay. So most of the fathers believe as a rule of thumb, when you come to the letters of Holy Scripture, because God wants to talk about things savingly, and this is the most savingly relevant information that, you know, you need to know about, therefore, wrath of God doesn't mean a passion in God. It doesn't mean an affection in God. It means a certain creaturely happening called wrath of God. Um, the Germans would call it angst, <laughs> something like that. Okay. 
is reason number one. Reason number two really picks up here and says, because or insofar as God stands in a causal relationship with that pain, intending it as or making it to be due punishment from sin. Therefore, we can truly run an analogy of proportionality, which involves how a man from his anger stands in a causal relationship to pain that he himself inflicts. Again, that relationship of a man from his anger to that effect is going to be a similar kind of relationship to how God is standing to this creaturely happening. And so we say, analogy of proportionality, just as a man from his anger makes another to be punished, he whacks him with a whacker, so to speak. In a similar fashion, or just so, God also has intended our pain or evil, which results from our sin. And so God himself is said to be angry because of that similarity of relationships, namely the relationship which God has to this creaturely happening and the relationship which an angry man has to a similar kind of effect. That grounds or founds or verifies the affirmation of wrath to God. It's 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 a certain kind of affirmation we talk about in scholastic theology. Uh, an affirmation which is the is involved in in running an intellectual analogy of proportionality. Okay, so reason number one, God, insofar as he intends the pain which we inflict upon ourselves as due punishment for sin, is angry because inflicting pain or punishment is a proper or distinctive effect of angry persons. So God says, I'm angry so that we advert to the real punishment which happens. Or reason number two, and again, this envelops the latter reason, God, because he's similar to an angry man, according to an analogy of proportionality, is angry. So those are the two positive or actual reasons why we can and do affirm that God has wrath. However, because this is not a proper affirmation, It's extremely, extremely important to flag the false cause, to pick out and to identify not the reason why, not the reason why we're making this affirmation. This is where we say God has zero wrath because of the grave and serious risk of error and also actual error, which many people have. When they read the letters of Holy Scripture or they read some theologian saying, yes, 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 God is angry. And they think the reason that God is angry is he's angry and they don't understand that the reason is because he wills punishment, because an analogy of proportionality is something like that. Okay, they, they, they bear to that affirmation in the same fashion that they would bear to a normal everyday affirmation of Socrates is angry. No weirdo means, or uh, unless you're a weirdo, you don't mean anything by saying that Socrates is angry, except Socrates has anger. He's experiencing the passion or emotion, if you like, of anger in his person. And therefore, that's how he's feeling. You know, we continue to explain this kind of thing here. This is our normal person way of speaking. It's where we make proper or formal affirmations to speak scholastically, okay, And because of that habituation to the way things happen in our creaturely world, when we move into Duenas, we make divine predicates of God, we have to say, slow down. The reasons that God is something are vastly different from the reasons that we are something. These are true things to say of God, to predicate of God, yes, but their reasons are very, very, very different. Sometimes, Those reasons are even altogether otherwise, such is the case when we make affirmations of divine passions. And so we say, stop. You know how you normally affirm anger of Socrates for the reason that Socrates actually has anger? Well, that reason is not true in the case of the reason why God has anger. In fact, you need to totally remove you need to zero out this predicate. It's rather true to say, 
God has no anger at all. What this thing is in no wise is falling into God. God has nothing, nothing of it. And you flag this, underline it, because people make this very serious mistake. And so we say, God, although he has zero wrath, that's the wrong reason or the false cause, nonetheless, either because he makes a certain effect or because he's similar to an angry man, indeed is angry. That's the whole sum and substance, the doctrine of wrath of God in tradition, what it is, so to speak, what wrath of God actually is. The wrong reason, which we flag relevantly so people don't get confused, and then the the true reason, the reason why, the, the true cause, which for various reasons, the tradition can be kind of either or. Again, the second reason in, involves, or we might say, sublates the first. So those would be the basics of what we mean by wrath of God. So I recently started to read a little bit of Peter Lightheart's new book, Creator. And the first chapter, he sort of takes aim at this approach to scripture. He, he buckets them under the terminology of like accommodation. And he doesn't like it because it's he. it seems to me, at least, what he's saying is this relativizes what scripture is actually saying and sort of like takes away the force of it. And I think there is like, you mentioned it, there is a natural just intuition that when you read something, you should read it just very literalistically. So what is the just, yeah. What is the justification for interpreting it in these more sophisticated ways? Cause Lightheart sort of says, well, basically when you do this, you basically say the Bible's just complete baby talk. And you need to be the grown-ups in the room and talk metaphysics over here. Yeah. Well, there's two things here. First of all, accommodation is a separate issue. Um, if you're not sympathetic to the view that I just outlined, uh, when you add accommodation to the mix, it's going to make it like five times worse. Okay. Accommodation is where we say God was just pretending to be angry. and much more radical things, okay? So it makes makes the the initial uh, suspicion that, again, I underline, people rightly have that much more because it seems to undercut the truth. It seems to destabilize the authority of Holy Scripture. And it seems to derealize or empty of force the the positive revelation of God in Holy Scripture. Okay. Um, so that's that's the first thing we might say. As to as to how we handle that that kind of question, you only have the right, this is something unique to Thomas and his real contribution. You only have the right to read Holy Scripture in this fashion if you can demonstrate scientifically the total negation of wrath from God. That's why we underline God has zero wrath as so important. So let's think on hypothesis here for a moment. On hypothesis that the total, not the partial, The total removal of wrath, this predicate wrath from God is true. On that hypothesis, then if that's true, then every affirmation of wrath to God that we find in Holy Scripture, because as we know, Holy Scripture always returns true judgments, involves us, first of all, entirely whiting out the letters wrath and reading something else, whether a concrete creaturely happening, like pain, whether somebody running an analogy of proportionality, or, or what have you. That's, that's again, getting into positive territory, which you know we need to talk about. But at least you can see on hypothesis what's going on here. This really underwrites the importance of St. Thomas for this and related questions. The fathers and everybody worth their salt knew that totally removing passions from God was true and that affirming 
anything of passion in God was false. All the fathers say that unequivocally, and they openly mock those who do so as simpletons. And they're not looking at normal persons. They're looking at would-be philosophers or would-be theologians who should know better. There's a vast difference between how we would respond to uh, you know, somebody who lacks training, lacks education, et cetera, input something here, and how we would respond to somebody who's making the claim to be an expert philosopher, expert theologian, and who's, and who's making rookie mistakes. So the fathers, in speaking to those who should be experts or proclaim themselves experts, but are making rookie mistakes, like not knowing that God is not a body, which is a really, really, really difficult error to entirely root out of yourself. Yeah. And then even going beyond and recognizing that not only is God not a body, but even the other component of the passions, which has to do with their proper objects, doesn't fall into God. That's where we move from the partial negation to even the total negation. Okay. That's one of the things we do maybe day one, two, three, four of theology. And here you are, Mr. So-called expert in theology, who apparently was asleep in your first three, four days, and you don't know how to truly, totally remove. Okay. They'll speak of him as a simpleton or as a heretic or something of that sort. They use very, very powerful, very, very aggressive, extremely aggressive language. Um, but the issue is when we go to the fathers and we, we rest on their authority for making those total negations, either we don't take them seriously. We say, eh, it's only, God is only kind of not entirely as angry as we are. So we see this, right? The normal Sunday school answer. God is angry means, well, of course he doesn't, he doesn't have like rage like we do, but he's righteously indignant, that kind of mood, which all of us grew up with and is, and is true as so far as it goes. It's, it's, it's gestured that wrath of God is not identical to our wrath. Okay, this is very good. Um, it's just we have to go further down the line. Yeah. So the issue, though, is when we rely upon the authority of the fathers, we either don't take their total negation seriously we don't cognize how much uh, of the error, the wrath of God actually infests our thinking, our theology, again, our soteriology and so forth. Or when we come to the letters of Holy Scripture, which so frankly and frequently say, yes, 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 God totally, definitely actually has wrath. And in fact, the wrath of God is something of a theme. Then we think that we have to choose between the orthodoxy of the fathers and, and, and actually doing justice to the letters of Holy Scripture. In such a case, we need to have scientific theology, which demonstrates, not merely proves, but demonstrates and gives us scientific certainty, certainty about the total negation of wrath from God. Only when we have that unshakable certainty that indeed, 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 the total negation is correct. Do we have what it takes to face the letters of Holy Scripture and do what orthodoxy requires us to do? Um, and if you don't have that, then, you know, we, we've got mechanisms of speaking like uh, of this today, like you're, um, you're epistemically justified, I suppose, is how, how people would say, to be suspicious of people who do that and to have your native posture of say these things that scripture tells us to say of God as much as you can. We do that in theology as well. Like that's the pure design of Thomas theology is whatever predicate we're talking about affirmative God as much as we can. That's why the, the first reason of wrath of God that I mentioned above, someone like St. Thomas increases to, to even the level of the second reason, because if you use only the first reason, you're under you're undershooting it. We don't want to do that. It just so happens that this is as much as you can, namely analogy proportionality, which we know by virtue of the demonstration of the total removal up above. So if the reason why God has wrath cannot be that he has anything of wrath, then whatever true reason it is, is has a certain set of limits. Yeah? We want to we find the most 
the most we can say. And we do that in, in systematic, particularly in scholastic theology. Again, that's not really even handling the accommodation question yet. Accommodation question gets really, really scary, uh, even even more scary than most people would would. Uh, well, it's, they cer- it certainly would not leave them very happy. Um, un- again, understandably. So, if we say that God has zero wrath, does that then mean that God has zero mercy or zero love as well? When you're dealing with different predicates, oftentimes the reasons for them are not the same. We affirm such and such of God. So it depends on what you mean by mercy. It depends on what you mean by love. Mercy is a difficult case because mercy is a name that equivocates either for a passion or something higher in the the immaterial intellect. But love, for example, is much easier. Love we all know is not merely a bodily feeling. It's something more than that. Wrath, so to speak, is merely a bodily feeling. Again, there's a lot more that we need to do here with metaphysics, but at least broadly speaking. Because of the real difference with us among creatures of what wrath is and what love is, again, what creaturely wrath, what creaturely love is, that real difference, it makes a real difference in how we can say these in Duenans. And it so happens that if you were to say God loves merely means that he's similar to somebody who loves, he doesn't actually have love, then you would be undershooting it. And you would need to say love of God for a higher, more fulsome reason, if you like. Uh, In technical terminology, we say God is love formally or properly. And we would never make the negation God has zero love or something like that. That's a total removal of love from God. No, that's false. That's a false negation, right? Whereas when we get to passions like wrath, wrath is, you know, an exemplary passion in many ways uh, for various reasons, which we cover in metaphysics or philosophy. Again, we have to demonstrate these things. Uh, It's true to totally remove such from God. And therefore there are inherent limits, namely the limits of truth, on how much we can affirm this predicate of God, which are not the same inherent limits of how much we can affirm love of God. And because of that, God is, we might say, more like love and less like an angry man, which is what normal persons might gesture to, to what we're doing like in the technicality. Everyone knows that we do operate in this kind of fashion. So, we, we say God is love, and then we just put a period at the end of our sentence when we're speaking a natural language and we, and we go away. Whereas if we say God is a tree, we have to hasten to say, now, as you know, obviously I don't mean that God is a tree. That would be ridiculous. But I mean that God is like a tree insofar as he communicates goodness to creatures like a tree communicates its sap to its leaves. So I ran, ran an analogy of proportionality. Now, normal people don't need that major flagging of the false cause. Obviously, God is not a tree. When it comes to things like God is a rock, God is a lion, etc., God has a hand, these, these, these more overtly clear metaphorical names for various reasons. It just so happens, particularly given shifting, shifting uh, insights into the nature of what the passions are, that when we get to the divine passions, it's really important to make those. Now, obviously, God doesn't have any wrath at all because our, our native inclination is to think what God does. Just like we, you know, just like a blind person might, for some awkward, strange reason, have been natively disposed to think that God is a tree by virtue of us saying repeatedly again and again and again, like really capitalizing on the metaphor, God is a tree, God is a tree, God is a tree. Well, if you say that enough times, I'm going to convince you of the error that God is somehow a tree. And then in that case, we would have to say, oh, God has zero treeness. And we have to write articles like that, which would be uh, an unfortunate situation. indeed. That's the situation we find ourselves in, in Protestantism and evangelicalism, particularly with the wrath of God. And this is an issue that's come to the fore from the early modern period forward, where we started to lose, uh, where we started to really slip on these types of issues. 
Yeah, so I, I'm especially curious about that, the slippage, because I, I recently read William Shedd on the Divine Attributes, and he weirdly makes wrath sort of like almost like an absolute attribute, one of like the most important ones. Yep. And then I, I, I always think of Edwards and his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Where does this shift happen, and why are they making this shift to prioritizing wrath to such a great degree? That is a very difficult question. Um, it might be better to back the train way, way, way up and first consider wrath generally among the fathers, the earlier tradition, wrath generally among medievals like Thomas, because the development, that intensification of that of, of the reason why that you even saw me initially do between reason one and reason two. Thomas medievals, I mean, it's it's found reason two is already found in the fathers, but for gener for as a rule of thumb, like reason one is there. It's only reason one. God, because he makes some effect, is angry. Okay. As you find kind of that wave of development reach all the way up to reason number two. There's a, a situation that's developed in the schools of theology, which when early moderns come, come, come on the scene, it makes it ripe for the tradition, either in Protestantism or Roman Catholicism, although, although much less in Roman Catholicism, to kind of tip, tip over and go into the absolute attribute territory, which eventually, especially a Protestant tradition does. So it's a bit of a tidal wave situation. Um, it has to do with developments that especially Thomas uh, intensifies that reason why it makes it a, a little bit higher, a little bit higher, a little bit higher. Again, we don't want to undershoot. We want to do justice to wrath of God. We want to do justice to the letters of Holy Scripture. Just like we want to say God is as, as loving as he actually is, we want to try and mirror in our words so that they correspond to just how much loving God actually is. Similar way, we don't want to undercut it in wrath of God. We want to get to the exact highest reason, but not go over. It's kind of a price of right, price is right situation, if, if you like. So answering that question really requires us to back up and consider wrath across the tradition. In the fathers, you find a really difficult situation that fundamentally is difficult because of the equivocation about this predicate wrath. So wrath means many things. Anger means many things. Again, we're using those conventional signs for the purposes of our discussion as equivalents. Um, but in the tradition, what the content of that predicate is varies because it happens that there are various creaturely states of affairs that are different from each other, but the word wrath is used to, to signify those differing creaturely states of affairs. When you do hyper-technical, weird scholastic theology, you have to pinpoint your predicate exactly. And once you've pinpointed it, it's essentially just crunching the numbers and seeing how much you can say that pinpointed predicate of God. In the fathers, however, the, the predicate, there's a lot of equivocation. Generally speaking, though, there are two kinds of equivocation. Wrath is either the Stoic passion or the Aristotelian passion. As you move in the medievals, it hardens to where it's almost always the Aristotelian passion. The word wrath, the word anger, era in Latin, just means Aristotle's definition. And it means the corresponding creaturely reality whence, whence our divine names are took. Among a lot of the earlier fathers, it's actually vice versa. Your rule of thumb, if, if a father, particularly a Greek father or a Roman, Roman theologian like Lactantius, their native usage of the word wrath, ira, certainly iracundia, which is usually the vice wrath, it's going to be the stoic passion, which is inherently a vice. So think of, think of how different our doctrines of wrath of God would be if one doctrine of God is saying, how is it true to affirm righteous indignation of God? It's basically the Latin the later Latin medieval tradition. Versus, how do you say that God has demonic rage? <laughs> oh boy, you might not want to say God has demonic rage, and that would probably be good instinct. But what do you do when you read Holy Scripture and you understand its letters as actually affirming demonic rage of God? 
and you're forced to explain how to affirm the stoic, vicious wrath, the passion in the bad sense of God. How are you going to do that? Okay. That's the kind of equivocation we're talking about. And that makes for very different doctrines of wrath of God. And one of the fundamental reasons why the fathers are really nervous about wrath of God is because the first thing they think it means is what Satan has. And so you are literally saying, how do you affirm God is satanic? Because that's what Holy Scripture is making you to affirm whenever it says wrath of God. Can we do that in theology? Yes, we can, but you're going to have to include a lot of negations and it's going to be really weird and it's not going to sound like normal people talk. We can do that, um, but you're going to be stretched. When we get in the early modern period and, you know, people are like, well, the original letters are just normal righteous indignation. We have the initial Sunday school answer of, well, God obviously doesn't have satanic rage. That would be weird. Yes. How do you explain God has righteous indignation? So we have different doctrines, okay? So that kind of explains some of the initial issues we face as we mine the tradition and we try and compare and contrast different accounts or explanations. But as a rule of thumb among the fathers, wrath equals the stoic, vicious passion. This is what it means for Augustine, for example, what it means for Lactantius. And their, their, their moves that they do fundamentally are starting from there. And they'll give various kinds of reasons. One is, again, probably the most popular, simply because pain happened from sin. Pain happened from sin. Why is God angry? Why is it true to say, affirm, God has wrath? Well, because pain happened from sin. The fathers, this is where something of the issue of accommodation is coming to, fore, coming to the fore here. The fathers believe that the ancient sages, um, whether we're talking about non-inspired sages like wise men or the inspired sages like, like Moses or something like that. The ancient sages would regularly take these kinds of normal people names, normal people words, talking about normal people things, and they would say them of God for the sake of teaching important truths. And they would often do so um, when particularly apt uh, object lessons came into view. So a standard account of how an ancient sage, whether Moses or just, you know, a non-scripturated uh, author would say wrath of God would be something like this. Some disaster happens uh, and a sage would stand up among the townspeople and say, God has been angry whereupon this event has happened. And the sage intends this to confirm that when we sin, there's spiritual evil and spiritual pain, which happens um, perhaps not immediately, but nonetheless, it happens most certainly as the consequence of sin. And so these sages, these wise men who are moved with compassion for people struggling with sin, were often saying that God is angry so that people would repent and they would be healed. And they were using the physical tragedies or natural disasters as object lessons to couple together the physical events as caused by spiritual evil to try and communicate the relationship between spiritual events, spiritual badness, which happens from spiritual sin, spiritual evil. So, our blindness, our weakness, our inability to think, the, the blindness that comes about by virtue of sin, the fact that oftentimes the actual punishment that accrues to us from our sin is very long in coming, is very distant in the future, made these ancient sages look at the natural works of God, the natural disasters, and look at human passions like anger or wrath and to intend both of these, namely a natural disaster and the human passion wrath, metaphorically. And so they say, God is angry, and therefore this tragedy has happened, and therefore you should repent, because similarly, spiritual tragedy happens when you sin. Is a very standard account. 
And again, the issue is the difficulty in understanding how certain it is sin has consequences. We all know in our own personal life how difficult it is to be gripped by that truth and to have our lives shaped by that truth. And so the ancient sages pretended that God has wrath to help us because, here's a quote from Augustine, a man who does not have wrath, uh, but who nonetheless does punish, is extremely difficult for us to consider. I'm giving a looser quote here from Augustine. And therefore, the ancient sages considered the punishment or the retribution of God, and they called it wrath of God, so that we would know for certain punishment is coming, be it now or in the end, and therefore you need to repent. Okay, so wrath of God simply means punishment happens. Another reason for saying wrath of God that's very common in the tradition, and this is very common in Augustine, for example, is God is said to be angry because he makes some person to be angry and so punish rightly his subjects for, for, their, for their wrongdoing. So when it happens that an angel or a good righteous human ruler becomes angry at the injustice of an evil person who you know, harms, harms the innocent, so to speak, uh, and therefore the, the angel shoots down his lightning bolts or the, the righteous king puts the, puts the offender in jail. Uh, he inflicts punishment. God is said to cause that by virtue of instilling in that person natural law and the right, the right feelings about moral evil and what should be done about moral evil, not only feeling properly, but also acting properly in the states of, in, in a state of power, such that reward of punishment is, is wrought upon offenders. That is said to be wrath of God. And God is said to be angry when an angel punishment punishes, when a ruler punishes in his stead. Wrath of God here is essentially like the causal universal force in the world, which makes us inherently feel angry when we're presented with situations of injustice or when we're confronted with wickedness out there in the world, we get all riled up. Why do we get, what is the cause? What is the reason why we get riled up? Well, God is ultimately speaking the cause. The natural law inscribed in us by nature is, is a more proximate cause that we have this inherent, like, aggressive punchback response. But ultimately speaking, that's said to be God. And God has providently set up the world to self-correct, in, at least in a certain measure. And it's this kind of, kind of causal universal force of the universe self-correcting. And uh, this is, again, where natural disasters happen it's the universe self-correcting by virtue of evil being in the world. And God has mysteriously inscribed this force, this natural law throughout the whole universe, such that this happens when, when people do bad stuff. Okay. It's kind of a, another general reason. A third general reason is when we talk about, we really go for it, and the fathers do, especially in the Greek tradition. And we talk about the causal relationship that God has not to a good angel who feels righteous indignation, not to a good human judge or ruler who feels who feels uh, righteous indignation about sin and therefore punishes. Therefore, God is set angry causally. But where we actually talk about the causal relationship that God has to demonic rage, to the actual wrath, here stoic vice, of Satan or an, an evil tyrant king or something like that which many, many, many times in Holy Scripture, the ancient sages, whether we're talking about Moses or the prophets, are taking a situation where an, a devil has done something, a tyrant has done something, and they're saying, this is the wrath of God. They're making us to predicate wrath of God in relation to the creaturely agent and the creaturely happening, whether that uh, happens to be a, a good punishment for sin or just rage that is wreaking havoc, um, havoc among the poor people. This is all called wrath of God. How do we really explain God in relation to this? Well, this is where you see the weird change up. The guys like Origen or Isaac or Ephraim, a lot of guys in the Syriac tradition, between wrath of God actually means the love of God. 
Wrath of God actually means the love of God. And universalists today really take take this up and grossly misread the fathers and don't understand what's going on here. What is going on? Well, how does God cause Satan's evil rage wherefrom he's brought to inflict needless pain? Which happens all the time in Old Testament. Like, really, I'm not just saying the letters. That's what's happening with these evil demons in the camp, etc. How do we explain God? Well, first of all, we say God obviously doesn't cause that evil rage, nor does he inflict needless pain. But what he does is he wills that evil for the sake of some good. And there are two kinds of goods that we can speak of here. One is the good of the person who was harmed, where God wills the inflicted pain on the harming person, the offender, for the sake of the good of justice. And so we say what Satan or his, 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 his minions intended merely for evil, merely for needless pain, God intended for punishment, the good of justice. He stuck on the back end of that needless pain a certain final cause, and he willed that final cause from justice. Okay, that's reason number one. Very similar to what we talked about right off the bat. Or reason number two. Here's where we get to the love part. God even wills that needless pain for the sake of the good of the offending party. The person who did the bad thing and therefore is experiencing pain from demonic rage. God even wills that for good. He even wills our pain for our healing as sinners. How does he add on that final cause to Satan's needless infliction of pain? Well, he does so because he loves. And therefore, when it's said that God is angry, i.e., what is the causal relationship that God has between Satan's rage and this creaturely happening of inflicting pain? What is the relationship that God has? Well, God from love wills that for the sake of our healing. And therefore, wrath of God means the healing love of God or the mercy of God, as Origen says. This is a very standard account. These are the general contours that you find among the patristic tradition. And those three basic answers are good rule of thumb general categories for the reasons that you're going to find. You're going to just find variations on these types of themes. And as we move into the medieval period, we start to uh, move a little bit away from some of these more wilder or, or more extended paraphrastic explanations like wrath of God actually means the love of God because people look, look at that and like, that's really strange. Yes, it is. The other thing that we start to do is we start to pinpoint a different predicate. So where before we were first, we were forced to say by the letters of scripture, God has demonic rage. It's like, oh boy, we're going to really have to reach into our theological toolkit to get, get us out of this situation and truly affirm such of God. No, scholastic tradition starts from the question, how does God have righteous indignation? How does God have the virtue of anger or the passion, the bodily state of affairs that, that we call the passion, anger, the emotion, anger? So that's the starting point. And when we start from that, that's where we get the uh, basic two reasons that I gave uh, at the very start. Either um, God is angry because he makes a certain effect, namely punishment from sin, or we run an analogy of proportionality. Nonetheless, the medievals intensify these two basic explanations uh, a little bit and do so in important ways. Thomas particularly does probably three things compared to earlier tradition that we would need to take note of here that are highly relevant. One of them involves flagging the false cause, and then the other two involve intensifying a little bit the true reason why. So regarding flagging the false cause, one of the important additions that medievals and especially Thomas contribute is they demonstrate the truth 
of the total negation of wrath from God. They both make it clear that we are actually talking about a total negation, not a partial. We're not merely saying God only has part of anger and the other part he doesn't have. No, zero. And then they also give a a philosophical or metaphysical or theological demonstration that yields scientific certainty about the truth of that negation, which enables us to do the necessary white out to the letters of Holy Scripture. So that's one of the first things that Thomas does. Regarding giving the true reasons why, Thomas advances the basic reason why into a more fulsome reason why God is angry. First of all, that it happens not merely because of the creaturely happening of pain or punishment, but that it does even happen by virtue of the comparison or analogy proportionality, which we can make thereupon. So God is angry means fundamentally God is similar to an angry man. Okay. That really solidifies under the hand of Thomas. You find that reason in Augustine. It's pretty basic in the earlier fathers, but even as far as someone like an Anselm, we don't have that reason. It's not common among theologians. After Thomas, analogy proportionality is just the standard, the duh reason. God is angry means he's similar to an angry man. Okay. Secondly, and this is where very important. When you're running analogy proportionality, you say just as a man from anger punishes, just so God punishes, and therefore God is said angry, you can add on some reasons why God is in relation to the certain relevant effect here, punishment, and you can stick those internal to the analogy proportionality. So outside analogy proportionality, when we ask what's the actual or the proper reason why God punishes, we say from his justice. God has justice properly and formally and therefore punishes sin. Now you can take that proper reason why and slot it back into the original analogy of proportionality and make a little, little bitty intensification. This is what Thomas does. The ultimate reason why God is angry, not merely because God, just as an angry man punishes, just so God punishes and therefore said angry, but even just as a man from anger punishes, just so God from justice punishes, and therefore God is said to be angry. That is as far as we go. There is no more truth is what we call the formal cause in scholastic theology. That is the entire doctrine of wrath of God. The whole reason why we flag the false cause, God has zero wrath. The whole reason why, which includes all the little itty bitty insights of the father we talked about above, is God just as a man from anger punishes, just so from justice punishes, therefore is angry. That's it. Here's where we find the early moderns come onto the scene. Where wrath of God can now become a metaphor for justice of God. And when anger of God means justice of God, as that occurs internal to the analogy of proportionality, but you take out the punishment part, which we start to see the earlier moderns do, we start to lose sense of the entire reason why, how analogy of proportionality works. We start to soften on the total negation of wrath from God, these sorts of things. Then the metaphor, wrath of God equals justice of God, which you can say as a result of the work of Thomas, loses its true reason as a a true metaphor and takes on a false reason. Namely, part of the wrath is dialed back to creaturely justice, which is inputted into God. Now the doctrine morphs and it becomes errant in a lot of places, particularly in the Reformed Orthodox tradition, more and more, where wrath of God equals justice of God. Yes. Why? Well, the patristic and the medieval reason why is because of the analogy of proportionality and all the, all the stuff I said above, a very long explanation why. But now it becomes 
remove something of the imperfection of the predicate wrath and retain part of the predicate. And that's what we're sticking into God. This happens particularly after Suarez, who talks about something called vindicative justitia or vindicative justice, which is the leftover bit of wrath, which we are not entirely removing when we're merely removing the bodily components. It's what normal people would mean by righteous indignation and things of that sort. And it's being put into God properly and formally outside analogy proportionality. And this sets up because of lack of clarity and, you know, gradual accrual of errors and, you know, lots of complexity, obviously, I'm being very simplistic here. This sets up this, the backdrop to where we are today, to where the basic move is the, the good Sunday school gesture. God is angry. Doesn't mean that he's actually raging like a demoniac. That would be weird. Don't do that. It just means more or less that he's righteously indignant. True. But is righteous indignation being said properly and formally as it becomes in guys like Shed, as you mentioned, in a lot of the Protestant tradition? Or is it the residual impact of a metaphor gone to seed in the early modern period whose original truth was lodged internal to analogy proportionality? That's really the story. And uh, yeah, so those would be some basic gestures uh, to try and answer your initial questions of how how wrath becomes an absolute attribute. That's really the, the story in, in a nutshell. So what I can confirm from this is that if you're listening and you find this interesting, you should go take Ryan's classes at the Davenant Institute <laughs> with uh, Davenant Hall. And then you'll have opportunity to engage to a significant degree with all these sort of questions and topics. Um, remind me, Ryan, what are you teaching this upcoming term? This upcoming term, I'm teaching two reading courses. One is on Bonaventura's Journey of the Mind into God. And then the other is Thomas's commentary on John. Um, I've been teaching reading courses on Thomas, just working through various works of Thomas to help people learn how to read, read Thomas. Uh, and so that's the continued Thomas seminar is, is what I do. The following term, which I'm super excited about, is where I'm doing Mercy of God, which parallels a lot of this doctrine of wrath of God. Because mercy and wrath are, are, are always running together, and there's similar kinds of explanations and issues that we find throughout the whole tradition. So a lot of that class will be wrath of God as well, or at least using wrath of God as it ebbs and flows as a, as a comparison point. Um, but that's why I'll be teaching the, the following terms. So first of all, Bonaventure and then Thomas, and then Mercy of God in the, in the term following. Excellent. Well, thanks, Ryan. This has been great. I think uh, we've all learned and been challenged in this. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Everybody who's been listening, do check out Ryan's work at the Davenant Institute. And as always, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.